It's Sunday morning. Time for the great outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning. Welcome to the Great Outdoors Show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. Thank you for joining me this morning. And, well, you you think it might be May in the Midwest. This week, Thursday, absolutely unbelievable. In fact, this whole week, is we're, we're threatening record temperatures. Interestingly, Thursday's temperature in the Chicago area, as some of you may have heard, approached a record that was set 99 years ago. So... We get a little reprieve from winter across the Mississippi River at Davenport, Iowa, on Wednesday, and I saw snow geese in the fields, flooded cornfields and bean fields on the Illinois side of the river. I saw snow geese passing overhead, and while the birds, I'm sure, will have lots of fits and starts as they head back to the Arctic with weather fronts, what the birds are telling us is the worst of winter is behind them. They wouldn't spend the energy that's required to migrate north only to turn around and have to go hundreds of miles back south. So they know more than we do about the weather. It's, it's life and death for them. And the birds, snow geese, are definitely telling us that it's an early start to spring. It doesn't mean that it's going to be not be a protracted spring and we could have this kind of weather you know, well into the late spring. But what it does tell us, I believe, the birds are telling us the worst of winter is clearly behind us. Last week, we talked about Brent Manning and the incredible legacy that he has left for conservation with his tragic passing recently. There were two elements of that conversation that I had with Carrie Luft of the Max McGraw Wildlife Foundation that were overlooked because there were so many achievements that Brent made in his life that in the time we had, we couldn't capture them all. But two of the achievements that we did not discuss in depth which we, I will now just briefly discuss, really define the kind of legacy that a visionary conservation leader can deliver. Not just Brent Manning. Brent Manning happened to deliver this vision, but it goes to show what a visionary in conservation can do. Brent came up with the idea, while Governor Edgar was governor, of the Illinois Conservation Congress for the first time bringing together the varied constituent groups around the state of Illinois to Springfield to talk about conservation issues and decide about decide conservation priorities. What he did was he empowered individuals from across the state and gave them a voice. He gave organizations a voice they had never had. The Conservation Congress at its time, I believe, was the first of its first of its kind in the country. And, and some people clearly did not like it. They did not like the fact that Brent Manning and Governor Edgar were opening up the Department of Natural Resources to the public for public input, for public participation. Brent felt so strongly that the only way to have a powerful Department of Natural Resources was to have a powerful group of conservation citizens behind, behind you. And until that moment, That never had occurred. The Department of Conservation, which became the Department of Natural Resources under Brent Manning's leadership, would not have succeeded with the many initiatives it did if Brent Manning hadn't had the astute awareness that there were constituent groups all across the state that wanted to be heard, that had good ideas, 
and all they needed was a voice and representation. And the Illinois Conservation Congress gave them that. And there, then it turned the tide on the Illinois legislature because now the Department of Natural Resources had real clout. It had people who were willing to advocate for actions, whether it be improving state parks or what I'm going to speak about in a moment, the creation of the Illinois Conservation Congress. This was the power and, the, and really the, it was the insight that Brent Manning had. He turned the tables on the longstanding political rhetoric in Springfield, and he showed the state senators and the state representatives that the Department of Natural Resource mattered, that lots of people in Illinois cared about our natural resources. Unfortunately, changes in administration, the departure of Brent Manning, and the Conservation Congress was happily pushed to the side by the legislature and others because now they didn't have to deal with it with an organized group of people representing various interests for the advancement of conservation. And we haven't had one in many years, although it was one of the absolute goals of Brent Manning before he was finished was to see the Conservation Congress come back to life. The other achievement was the creation of the Illinois Conservation Foundation. It was among the first of its kind in the country, a foundation supported by the private sector to do work on behalf of the state of Illinois for conservation. John Schmidt was his first executive director and did a phenomenal job. Under Brent Manning's leadership, the Conservation Foundation not only was established, but it raised quite a bit of money. It created the Illinois Conservation Foundation Hall of Fame, of which individuals of stature who've had long histories in Illinois of making it a difference for conservation, the outdoors, our natural resources, have been elected. People such as John Huzar, Bill Cullerton, and many others have been, Doug Overhelman, have been elected to the Illinois Conservation Foundation Hall of Fame. Brent had that vision, and now conservation foundations are, are commonplace across the country. It seems as though most states have one, and they're built upon the model of Illinois. In fact, I recently learned that Florida's Conservation Foundation has over $100 million in its bank account. I'm afraid Illinois is, is not even, well, it's lucky if it has 2% of that. But Illinois at least has a conservation foundation. It has, it has survived the political turmoil of the Bogoilovich administration and the Quinn administration, which basically just absolutely robbed the Department of Natural Resources of, of funds. Um, it is alive. It's not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's well, but I would say it's alive, and it has a great board of directors, individuals such as Mike Hillstrom and Bill Cullerton Jr., among them on the board. So the Illinois Conservation Foundation is a legacy of Brent Manning in the state of Illinois. It can do great things. There are others in the country now that have shown the way. But what it did was it fostered a nationwide movement for states to be able to have foundations to support the work of the Department of Natural Resources or Fishing Game in every state. That was the idea of Brent Manning. And in Illinois, as I said, it, it, it had a great run for a while. It hit on hard times. It's rebounded. It's doing tremendous work, particularly with the Torstenson Family Center in Pecatonica, which is a great place for youth education. Uh, all that's run by the Conservation Illinois Conservation Foundation. 
So if you're listening to this show and want to and want to learn a little more about the Illinois Conservation Foundation, go online. It's an extremely worthy group. They need a lot of help, um, but they do they do great work, and they have a, a good board of directors that is committed to making the Illinois Conservation Foundation the best it can be. And in Brent Manning's memory, interestingly, donations are being received by the Illinois Conservation Foundation in Brent Manning's memory. That is among his many legacies in the state of Illinois, for which we uh, we have to be thankful for his service because he really did an incredible deed for the uh, for the state of Illinois and for conservation. That is what we did not talk about last week when we talked about his many many accomplishments. These were two of his really really stellar accomplishments, leaving quite a legacy and. As I wrap up talking about my great friend and, and great leader, Brent Manning, I can only hope we bring back the Illinois Conservation Congress uh, to Illinois. We need it. Before I go to the break, I quickly want to touch on something that a, a listener sent in to me, a question about lead shot uh, in animals, not in birds, but in animals. And the question was along the lines of, if you shoot a deer with a bullet, do you have to, are you worried about lead poisoning if you consume the meat? And the answer is no. Lead poisoning that takes place in animals takes place in their gets into their nervous system and their digestive system. A bullet will not cause lead poisoning in an animal unless it were to be and I'm I'm not a this is the information I've been able to gather on this. There is some differing opinions. Unless that bullet were to become lodged in the animal's intestines or vital organs and stayed there for a long time but it, that's not an animal that you're going to have shot and eaten and the same with birds there that you are when you're shooting quail and pheasants and doves and turkeys the fact that you're shooting them with lead shot has absolutely no bearing whatsoever as to the bird having lead poisoning lead poisoning for birds is is something that they ingest and it gets in their their digestive system and there, there is no evidence of any kind that birds that are hunted with, with lead shot would ever have a lead poisoning lead issue uh, for anyone consuming it. And primarily the lead, the lead issue was with waterfowl. And for a long time now, waterfowl hunting has been outlawed using lead shot. You can use any kind of shot you want so long as it doesn't have toxic, toxicity. And that's because lead shot went into the bottom of marshes, and that's where millions of ducks and geese uh, dabbled and fed and got their grit, and of course, then that's how they got lead lead poison because that they, they digested it in their digestive tract. That does not happen with upland birds, and it does not happen with deer, antelope, elk, etc. So, I hope I answered that listener's question. It's a very thoughtful question and a, and a great one. And and for those of you who wondered about it, that's the best answer I can give you. And. I always welcome questions from those of you listening to the Great Outdoors Show on WGN. We're going to go to a break now, and when I come back, I'm going to talk about really an incredible experience I had recently. First, though, and a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet dealers. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. Hiking, camping, and hunting, it's all an adventure in the great outdoors, but nature can be tough. You need to be ready for anything and everything. Chevy Silverado is built to handle the toughest conditions and get you everywhere you want to go worry-free. 
Silverado's designed to handle the big jobs. It's built for the great outdoors. With over 13,000 pounds of towing capacity and trailering sway control, Silverado can haul the biggest loads on the roughest roads and keep you cool as a Sunday drive. With eight available cameras and up to 14 different views, it can spot trouble before it gets to you. That's peace of mind. And when you're ready for the backcountry, Chevy Silverado 1500 ZR2 owns the off-road. You name it, we run over it. No wonder it's Motor Trend's 2023 four-wheeler pickup truck of the year. So see your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and check out a Chevy Silverado. It's freedom to explore the great outdoors. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. Hope you've been enjoying the show. And if you're just joining me, unless you're driving a car, I think it would be great if you just closed your eyes and transported yourself. And if you're driving, please, please don't do it unless you pulled over. Um, what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm going to transport you to a place that is spectacularly beautiful and an experience I had a couple weeks ago that in in some ways changes your perspective on hunting and and really changes your perspective on fair chase and the beauty of America. So a couple weeks ago, I had the pleasure of chucker hunting high in the mountains of the Intermountain American West. And for veteran chucker hunters, the saying is, the first time you hunt, hunt chuckers, it's for fun. Thereafter, it's revenge. I've hunted chuckers enough to know that it is the most difficult game bird in North America to hunt, maybe the world to hunt, because of the topography they're in and how they behave and the work of the dogs and the spectacular scenery. So transport yourself for the next couple of minutes to high in the mountains, early February, in the Intermountain West of the Rockies. A major storm had come through just before we got arrived, putting snow on the peaks of, of all the mountains in this spectacular high desert valley. The ground was muddy. It was not freezing at night, which is highly unru- unusual. And the foothills were, were covered with snow, which only served to melt during our time there, creating a, creating a nearly impenetrable, sloppy mess. The problem with hunting chuckers is you do not hunt them on low ground. You hunt them high. And as a friend of mine who's quite a good chucker hunter says, the rule for chuckers is go high and then get higher because chuckers will always flush and fly downhill. So they hang out under the crevices of rocks, under plateaus. You're not going to find them in the cattails and along streams. No, no, that's not where they like to live. They live high up in the mountains. And yes, they may fly down to the cattails and streams to get some water, but immediately they go back up into the mountains, the craggly bluffs. And you're doing elevation differences of, well, well over a thousand feet on terrain that's, that's really made for a mountain goat. And a lot of us are not mountain goats. You hunt them with pointers, anything less than a pointer, and you're going to have a tough time with chuckers. So with this weather that was anything but normal, very wet, off we set one day for what turned out to be a nearly five-hour walk. It was snowing when we started. It was windy. 
somewhere into the hunt, the snow turned to sleet. Somewhere there after that, it just turned to pelting rain. By this time, we're several miles from our truck. It's miserable. We have not found a chucker. And what we would come to learn is that when the weather's like that, you're not going to found, find chuckers. The day before, in bright sunshine, we heard and saw as many chuckers as I ever heard in my life and ever have seen in my life. Only problem was they were two to 300 yards from us the entire time. Dogs would go on point. You'd walk up behind the point, and 200 yards away, the chuckers would flush. But it was great to see hundreds and hundreds of chuckers and numerous cubbies. We knew they were there. So this next day, in vile weather, and big wind, we went out in search of chuckers. And for five hours, we did not find any, which makes you realize this is really about hunting. It's about having a walk. Yes, you have a gun in your hands. Yes, you have dogs in front of you and the countryside spectacular. But really what you're doing is you're walking or climbing or mountain climbing or sliding down on your rear end. It's, it is all in the pursuit of a bird that coveys up and is as smart as any game bird there ever has been. So during this walk, our dogs would go on point and we would come up to the dogs and then the dog would start to creep and it would creep. And it always, of course, kept creeping uphill because chuckers are always going uphill when they feel threatened. And then when they fly, they fly right back at you downhill. So we on one point, beautiful, beautiful dog was on point. Not a Rottweiler, excuse me, a German short hair pointer. Perfect configuration, locked up. And we walked up, you hunting pairs, we walked up behind it. And it started to creep step by step. We knew the birds were in front of us. We could see their tracks in the wet mud. And we crept for over a half a mile, one step barely in front of the other, every second expecting this, this, just this explosion of, of chucker. 15, 20, maybe 40 chucker would get up in front of us and just mayhem. And so with every step, you're expecting this. And your heart is beating. And we walked for at least a quarter of a mile straight up, just barely following the dog ever so slowly until first we were out of breath. And then the dog said, well, I guess they left and turned around and ran away, leaving us up a steep hill, which we then had to climb down. That's chucker hunting. But as I close out the show for the day, I want to end with this part of the story. After nearly four hours of hunting, dog goes on point. Classic, classic point for an English pointer. And up walks two hunters to get on that point. And the dog is punting, and we're at about 6,000 feet, and the dog is pointing a mountain lion. The mountain lion is not more than 20 inches from the dog. And at the last moment, the, the mountain lion is recognized in the sagebrush instead of a covey of, of chucker. And the reason it was recognized was because there's no way chucker would let you get that close to them. And the owner of the dog screamed. And the mountain lion bolted, and as it bolted, it took a swipe with its right paw at the dog, which was still on full point. The dog reeled backwards, the paw missed, and the mountain lion took out across the rocky, the rocky terrain in the side hill. That's chucker hunting. You can open your eyes now if you close them. I hope I transported you to an incredible part of the world of incredible beauty, and it's something that's not for the faint of heart, but I have a 
a renewed respect for what I consider the toughest game bird in the world. Chuckers, particularly high in the mountains of the American West. Thank you for listening to The Great Outdoors Show. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be back next Sunday morning with much more on The Great Outdoors. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN.